You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do the people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not uh, as simple you know, I, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened up so many more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal wherever you get your podcast, And watch on Bloomberg Originals, Bloomberg Television, or BTV+. This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. Is it on or is it off? That's the question that's been asked about Elon Musk's deal to buy Twitter for the last six months. Now, Musk says it's on. In a letter on Monday, the world's richest man made the proposal to go ahead with the $44 billion deal to buy the social media network on the original terms. But Twitter has not dropped its lawsuit to force Musk to go through with the deal, and the trial date is still set for October 17th. So what's going on? Here to tell us is Eric Talley, a professor at Columbia Law School. Why do you think Musk came in at the original offer price instead of trying a lower price? Well, look, like any situation in which you know, the parties or a party is reaching or trying to find resolution, there could be a whole bunch of different reasons. One of them, most practically probably, is the fact that everything is lined up to close the deal at $54.20. The shareholders have voted. Proxies have been sent out. The lenders have signed up to a deal that's going to go off at that price. So if you're going to change the price from that, like if if we were going to go for a settlement at 53.20 or something like that, Pretty much all of those things have to be put back in place again, and that can take some time. And, you know, in the current market conditions, no one really is the biggest friend of trying to stall so long as you're trying to get this deal done. So that may be one of the main reasons why there's some attraction to getting exactly the same financial terms as were with the initial deal. And what drove Musk to make this offer now? A couple other things almost certainly drove him to do this now as opposed to two weeks ago. The first is just, you know, over the last couple of weeks, it has become clear that several of the defenses that Mr. Musk was trying to put forward, those windows were starting to close a little bit. You know, his bot hunt that uh, he was engaged in didn't seem like it was yielding the types of uh, gross disparities between Twitter's disclosures and what the data scientists were finding that he could walk away because that was a material adverse effect. That probably was also going to imperil some of the situations uh, related to fraud. A lot of the earlier um, 
discovery motions dealt with communications back and forth, and it seems pretty clear that Mr. Musk was well aware of bot issues. In fact, that's why he was going to go into this deal, and he was telling everyone about it. So I think a lot of the off-ramps that he had kind of hoped he'd be able to get, th- those windows started to narrow considerably, and it made it look more and more like, well, this may be a company that I end up owning. When you combine that with the fact that, A, he's about to go into a deposition, that deposition was probably going to be excruciating, long, and possibly a little bit embarrassing because there are a lot of, of claims that he or his lawyers had made that had been you know, almost fully rebutted by other witnesses. And uh, it's clear that he was going to be called and, and may still be called on a lot of those inconsistencies. And you know that would be videoed and shown in court. So I think that, that going into that deposition, they're never fun, but this one was going to be a particularly unpleasant one. And then you finally combine it with the fact that if things are starting to shape up to look as though Mr. Musk is now overwhelmingly likely to be owning Twitter, however this thing settles. How much more does he want to try to kneecap this company? Because most of his defenses you know, pretty much boil down to saying Twitter's a terrible company. Who would want to buy it? Who would want to own it? Who would want to work for it? Who would want to be a customer of it? And if that's going to be his booby prize at the end of the day, maybe he sort of thought it's best I stop being sort of the saboteur and start being the booster of this company. And so it's not terribly surprising that at some point, once he realized that uh, he's going to be trying to recruit people to stay, the employees to stay and other investors to come in, that involves telling a positive story, not a negative story. And And the earlier he can pivot to doing that, perhaps the better. His offer was made with a proviso that the Delaware Chancery Court enter an immediate stay of Twitter's fight and adjourn the trial. His offer came with the proviso that there be an immediate stay of Twitter's legal fight and an adjournment of the trial. Twitter has not done that. Is this a case of fool me once, shame on you, fool me twice, shame on me, fool me three, four or five times, shame on Twitter? Well, that was a nice try by Mr. Musk. But quite frankly, you know, the imagery of Lucy holding the football and Charlie Brown running up to kick the football again, I think is definitely in play here, right? The fact of the matter is that letter sort of says, I am going to undertake to agree to do what I've already agreed to do and was trying to back out on. And so when you really read that letter closely, yes, it signals that he's had a change of heart, that he's willing to try to close this deal on its original terms. That's great news for Twitter. But it doesn't really put his money where his mouth is. It's conditioned on an immediate stay of all proceedings and on the debt commitments closing. Well, you know, the fact of the matter is, that doesn't really change any of the positions that he was in. All it does is it signals that he's now more open to closing on these particular terms. So Twitter would be foolish if they said, okay, now that you've signaled this relatively limp willingness to go forward, we should just put everything on hold, even though we're careening towards an October 17th date. You know, if part of what was motivating him to issue this letter was sort of a fear of walking into that deposition room, well, if that's, you know, his come to Jesus moment in deciding he's going to soften up on this deal, why would Twitter ever want to put on the brakes on their lawsuit? So if I'm Twitter's attorneys, and it seems like this is what they've been doing, you know, you're telling your associates, no, you don't plan a trip to the Bahamas that week. We're 
planning to go to trial, and until and unless the ink is dry on a deal that's much more credible than the first one, we're not going to let this slow down, you know, any or at least not very many parts of the schedule that we put in place to get us ready for trial. What happens next? Is the uh, deposition going to go forward? Well, the deposition is scheduled uh, to be on October 6th and 7th, I think, and that is absolutely still in the books. Now, they might push the deposition by a couple days. It's conceivable they would, particularly if it's the queasy feeling about that deposition that is, in fact, um, inducing a little bit of softening up of Mr. Musk. That is probably going to mean that other things get accelerated into its place, and that would give them maybe, you know, 48 hours to try to work out whether they can get all of their ducks in a row to close the deal. But, you know, if they are negotiating in the background what this closed deal is going to look like, I would expect that Twitter is trying to make sure that there are concessions there that are a little bit more concrete than merely a repetition of the promise that he made back in April to close the deal. So, for example, they might have him stipulate the various legal outcomes and essentially say, I'm going to agree that uh, specific performance is, in fact, the right order here and concede my liability on the issue. Or alternatively, they might say, okay, if you want to go through with this deal, and it's going to take a few more days or weeks to get things lined up, we would like you to immediately put enough cash and stock in other companies like Tesla and SpaceX into an escrow account so that if you try to back out on it, we don't have to try to haul you into court for a specific performance decree. We'll just have a judge attach that account and have it empty out to us, and that will kind of put your money where your mouth is. So there are ways that they could try to put a few more teeth into this undertaking to close this deal at $54.20. But I can't imagine that they would simply be happy to both delay and just reaffirm the the um, you know all of the provisions as they are. Now, they can't do too much to the deal to change it around or else they're going to have to go back and, you know, issue new proxies to shareholders, get another shareholder vote and, and you know, go back to the to the um, debt commitment letter and, and, and hope to get a new one of those as well. So th- these will be mainly sort of, um, you know, a, additions or riders to ensure prompt payment by Mr. Musk uh, and and adding on something like an escrow account or um, an admission to liability wouldn't necessarily require changing the the other terms of the agreement. What might the judge do to make sure that this deal happens before she decides to, you know, before she decides to cancel the trial? Well, typically, you know, when parties go into deep negotiations about a potential settlement, the judge will give them a little bit of room to do it, but not infinite room to do it because, you know, Chancellor McCormick's pretty savvy to this as well. One of the part, Mr. Musk, has been alleged to already have been engaged in, you know, stalling tactics in this litigation. So I think there's a sense in which the courts and Twitter would sort of say, okay, look, we'll give you enough room to see if we can negotiate a settlement of this deal, but not if all it really is is a pretext to put everything on hold. So I suspect that Chancellor McCormick will, you know, give them a little bit of leeway, particularly if they both show up saying we really think we're close to a deal, Your Honor. She might bump a couple of the depositions. I doubt she's going to bump the trial date, quite frankly, because, you know, that's been set for months now. And, you know, Chancellor McCormick, this is not the only case that she's hearing. She's scheduling all these other cases around it as well. So that week has been reserved and dedicated to this case. And I I anticipate that it's going to be the matter that goes forward at that time. You know, there are still pieces to put together. One of the big wild cards in this case is whether suddenly the uh, lenders in the deal were going to get cold feet. 
can show up and say we're not willing to go forward, which then could throw things into even more chaos. So my guess is that these discussions aren't just between Twitter and Musk, but the lenders are in the room as well, just trying to make sure that every you know all the remaining pieces that have to be put in place can be put in place. Uh, enough assurances can be given to Twitter that the deal will close, and they can execute any additional paperwork that they need to make that happen. What else could happen to trip up the deal? Well, there still is this wild card about the lenders. Now, the lenders don't have a lot of outs um, in this deal, but there is a set of dominoes that could fall over if the lenders somehow legitimately back out. The most critical one is that if the lenders back out, while it doesn't forgive Musk entirely of his obligations, it would, at least per the terms of the contract, limit his liability to money damages, which is probably going to be the termination fee of a billion dollars. So the the lenders backing out for independent reasons, not goaded on or coached by Mr. Musk, has always been kind of an interesting wild card in this situation. And there aren't too many outs that the lenders have, but it could well be that one of the things that is going to be, you know, really critical for the lenders and is actually part of the deal itself is that uh, there has to be a solvency certificate that is issued for for Twitter, that it's got to be assured that it's going to be uh, solvent upon the closing of the deal, that it won't have liabilities in excess of assets or won't have cash flows that are incapable of meeting its debts. Someone's got to sign on to that and Weirdly enough, the entity that has to sign on to that solvency certificate is Elon Musk himself. So there could be some kind of odd fun and games that take place in which Musk says, I don't think I can sign on to the solvency certificate, and therefore the banks are going to pull their lending, and therefore he doesn't have to close under the contract. I do think that there is a danger that if that happens, though, it's going to be perceived by Twitter and probably the judge as being a little bit too cutesy. So I have some reservations about whether they're even going to try to go down that road. It is a theoretical possibility, so that might be something to keep our eyes out on. And the letter that Mr. Musk sent about his offer to, you know, come back to the table at 5420 also says, well, provided that the debt gets funded as well. So he has kind of worked in some wiggle room, some margin of error on that front as well. And and it's something that, you know, you kind of look at and you say, okay, this is a letter that has, you know, some concessions in it, but it is not yet the paragon of predictability that I think Twitter would want or the judge. Eric, is it just coincidence that Musk was getting blowback for his peace plan proposal on Ukraine and then news breaks the next day that he's going forward with the Twitter deal? Uh, I do think that there, there, you know, have been, you know, in addition to a bunch of the other distractions, right, um, Mr. Musk's decision that he's going to engage in foreign policy initiatives for Ukraine being only one of them. But, you know, some bad news for Tesla in terms of their, you know, production numbers and so forth. I do think there's a sense that the number of other distractions have grown sufficiently large that maybe Mr. Musk sort of thought, okay, this was fun for a while. This was entertaining for, for a few months, but now I got other things on my plate. And, you know what? I kind of see where this is going anyway, so I might as well close this deal. I think you combine that with the fact that, you know, this was not destined to be a walk in the park, this deposition. I think there would be a lot of cringeworthy moments for Team Musk during this deposition of statements that are just outright inconsistent and by Twitter's account, just lies about what Mr. Musk did and didn't do in his communications back in April. That no one really wants to have to sit through that squirm fest of a deposition unless you're the lawyer that's taking the deposition. <laughs> I guess. Thanks so much, Eric. That's Eric Talley, a professor at Columbia Law School. 
You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest-growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank. Because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Tom Barrick, the founder of Colony Capital and a close ally of Donald Trump, is on trial in Brooklyn for using his access to the former president to secretly help the United Arab Emirates to try to gain influence over American foreign policy. Prosecutors say that Barrick and his former assistant, Matthew Grimes, were the eyes and ears and voices of the UAE, providing the country with sensitive information and access to the highest levels of U.S. government. But the defense says Barrick was a globetrotting businessman who ran a $40 billion investment fund and called the prosecution's allegations that he was an illegal foreign agent nonsense. Joining me is Bloomberg legal reporter Patricia Hurtado, who's covering the trial. Tell us what prosecutors are accusing Barrick of. Well, Tom Barrick is a longtime friend of Donald Trump's, who acted as one of his campaign finance guys in 2016. The government alleges that during the run-up to the election, as well as Trump's election as president, he and his former assistant, a gentleman named Matthew Grimes, basically conspired to act as unregistered foreign agents for the government of the United Arab Emirates. And the allegations are that he agreed to do the UAE's bidding to help influence the new presidency and the new, the new administration, arranging for meetings, talking points, 
He denies it all. He said he was just a businessman doing his business. The government alleges he made money. According to the government, the Emirati Sovereign Wealth Funds later invested about $374 million into a fund and real estate projects he backed. So was there any formal agreement or anything that the government can point to to specifically show the agreement? No, which you have to do. And so if you are acting as a foreign agent, it's a 951 violation, Section 951. And according to this, you're supposed to tell the U.S. government that you're doing lobbying for the foreign country. The U.S. says he failed to tell them, that he never registered, neither did Grimes. Meanwhile, they charged an Emirati, who is now a fugitive, of acting as the point man, basically, for the United Arab Emirates in the U.S. with Barrick and Grimes. And then the minute he understood that the U.S. was investigating that, he left the country. And what about Barrick's associate that's on trial? Yeah, he's his young assistant. He was 22 when he started working for Barrick right out of Wharton. And he's accused of helping arrange these meetings and helping arrange these communiques. But his lawyer, Abby Lowell, has said he was just a gopher for um, Barrick, arranging for making sure he had his boss's smoothie every morning and the coffee was hot and that the colony capital uh, private jet had the right food in it. So he was basically his assistant, nothing more. So is the defense he didn't do it? or he didn't get money for it, or what? It's both. That he didn't do it, and if he got money, it was because of investments that were just separate and apart from any kind of activity. Basically, that he denies any wrongdoing. He denies being an unregistered foreign agent. He denies acting and lobbying on behalf of the United Arab Emirates. And in fact, he's argued that there are actually points where he was advocating for Qatar. There was a blockade against Qatar, and he was advocating for Qatar, which is another Gulf country, which was violently opposed by the UAE. And they were basically sworn enemies. So why would you support one country and then support another country when they're enemies? What would you say from the opening statements is the best piece of evidence the prosecution has? Well, I mean, the other thing that he's charged with is lying to the FBI about this investigation when they question him point blank. Now, a lot of the evidence has been alluded to, but it's under seal because it's classified. (laughs) So there's apparently information there that has been redacted. Half of the documents that get filed are blacked out. According to the defense, they expect to call people in the former Trump administration to discuss that Trump and high-ranking officials in the Trump administration were aware that Barrick was talking to the Emiratis, and this was just the way they did business. And they were using Barrick because he was well-known to them, because one of the arguments is that Trump gets elected as a businessman and a former reality TV show host, right? So he doesn't have the traditional avenues of knowing who's going to be a former foreign policy advisor, you know, that can be a conduit to reaching the newly elected president. So, but he would still have to register as a foreign agent, though, wouldn't he? Yeah, he would. And but I think the argument is, if Trump maybe knew, and maybe high-ranking members of the administration knew that this was being done, 
I guess there is an argument of plausible deniability as far as the defense is concerned, right? Because if they knew what's the problem here and that perhaps another administration is seeing different because Trump's no longer in office. It seems like lying to the FBI is one of the prosecution's sort of fallbacks in these cases. And that's an easy case for the prosecution to make because the FBI usually has the answers before they ask the questions. Yeah, but it's interesting because they're arguing the same defense Martha Stewart made, which is, you guys didn't take notes. I mean, you took notes by hand, but you didn't record it. How do you know? You didn't write the questions down. How do we know that the answer was wrong when you don't have the question he answered? You know, you have an answer, but you don't know what the question was. And so how's the jury supposed to infer the worst possible interpretation and take the worst inference? Well, we know that defense did not work for Martha Stewart. How is jury selection? One of the interesting things that happened during jury selection is jurors were questioned closely about their feelings about Donald Trump himself and how closely they followed the the 2016 campaign. And um, the judge actually asked prospective jurors, how did they feel about Trump, Donald Trump himself, and what would they think if he came in to testify as a witness in this case? So that was extraordinarily unusual to hear that, especially at a time when we're having the Mar-a-Lago investigation and whether or not, you know, the January 6th hearings are going on and what transpired there. So it's, it's quite interesting that there's some possibility that Donald Trump or high-ranking members of his administration could be called in to testify, including Jared Kushner and possibly uh, former Secretary of State Rex Tillerson and um, former Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin about what did Barrick say and what did you know about it. Did the judge let jurors on who had any negative thoughts about Trump, negative feelings about Trump? For the most part, It was almost like if they were very discreet, they did not get kicked off the jury for cause. You know, there's peremptory challenges where both sides get to object to a certain juror for whatever reason. They don't have to cause. But there are times when the judge could strike someone for a prospective juror for cause if they seem to be, they don't speak English well, they're hard of hearing, they have a hardship for child care, for example, or a job hardship, right? So they can't sit on a five-week trial without losing income, which would be devastating to their household or something like that. So there were people that were very articulate critics of President Trump, including prospective jurors that had said he was a crook. Now, those people got struck for cause immediately, or people who were very loquacious and Mm -hmm. talked at length about how closely they followed the election and that they wanted Hillary Clinton to win. They were obviously candid and they got struck for cause. But there were other people that said, oh, yeah, I closely followed the election, but I didn't care about the outcome. But it's kind of a head scratcher was like, are they not being forthcoming to tell you the truth about what they who they wanted to win? So sometimes those people were struck. There was one woman who said she was upset about the outcome of Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer's case. So immediately the government is raising a red flag going, uh, this is a person who, who might believe in conspiracies and QAnon or whatever. So um, finally, I think the government struck her. But so that's the kind of thing where the judge made the prosecutors sometimes use their peremptory challenges to people who might be stealth Republicans. So um, 
these are the same charges that former National Security Advisor Michael Flynn faced? This case was actually started out of Mueller's investigation. It started there, and then it ended up in Maine Justice. So it started with a special prosecutor, and then it went to Maine Justice, and eventually now it's in the Eastern District of New York with a Department of Justice component to it of prosecutors. So how many witnesses so far? Any interesting witnesses so far? There's been a testimony from an expert, and he's a professor of um, Middle East studies, basically. And he's talking about the history of all these countries and sovereign wealth funds, which to me was fascinating because he's talking about these Gulf states who have principalities. They're run by sheikhs or princes or kingdoms, and they are oil-rich And some of them, like the UAE, United Arab Emirates, was interested in using soft power. And they used their sovereign wealth funds, some of them with, you know, unbelievable amounts of cash behind them. One of the sovereign wealth funds has something like $800 billion in assets. And they they do things like to win soft power and win goodwill around the world – investing in things like sports teams like Arsenal or Manchester United. Um, They built the United Arab Emirates built a stadium in downtown London based with, you know, for goodwill. Um, You can also see the Saudis doing this with live golf, which has decided to invest and have um, golf tournaments to the criticism of some people. So it was fascinating to me to hear this, you know, soft power influence and what they're trying to do um, to buy goodwill, including also back endowed chairs at universities for academic and research, as well as at think tanks. So it's fascinating to listen to. So this next week, I think we're supposed to listen to more experts to set the stage of what was at stake, why would have Barrick done this, and why the government thinks Barrick did this. You have the two defendants. They both have their own attorneys. Does their defense contradict each other in any ways? No, it's essentially a joint defense. And, you know, Grimes' defense lawyer uh, showed jurors pictures of his client. He apparently met Tom Barrick as a 16-year-old. He started a DJ business in Santa Barbara when he was 14. And when he was 16, he got hired by Barrick's wife to be the DJ at uh, Barrick's son's graduation party for eighth grade. So they have a picture from Grimes at that young, tender age of 16. He's all of 29 now, and he looks very young. So, uh, yeah, they seem to have a joint defense that seems to be, you know, working hand in glove together. Thanks, Patty. That's Patricia Hurtado, Bloomberg Legal Reporter. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. Remember, you can always get the latest legal news on our Bloomberg Law podcast. You can find them on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and at www.bloomberg.com slash podcast slash law. And remember to tune into the Bloomberg Law Show every weeknight at 10 p.m. Wall Street time. I'm June Grosso, and you're listening to Bloomberg. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. 
Join Bloomberg in San Francisco or virtually on May 7th for The Future Investor, Data-Powered Transformations. This 2024 event series will examine how data is not only playing a pivotal role in investment decisions, but serves as a driving force behind the construction of innovative investable enterprises. This series is proudly sponsored by Invesco QQQ. Register at BloombergLive.com slash Future Investor slash radio.